0: everybody. How is everybody doing this evening? Good, good. God bless you. It's so good to see you all. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. The first Samuel chapter 14. I apologize. My throat's a little dry. You're going to hear me a couple times. I took a cough drop here, so we shouldn't have an issue. You know, those pastors, they talk so much, you know. How come none of you are laughing there? Huh? That's supposed to be funny. It's the truth. That's why, huh? That's it. That's exactly right. That was funny. That was funny. Well, it's good to see you all. God bless you. Like I said, I'm happy you're here, and praise the Lord for those joining us online, and we're continuing our study in 1 Samuel. Uh, last week, left off, you remember, in chapter 13, uh, what was happening, and we're going to see a, an amazing battle with the Philistines that's going to come up here. But um, before that battle breaks out like that, we notice that Jonathan and both Saul are the only ones that really have weapons, swords, right, metallurgy. That was not uh, something that Israel had possessed at that point, a technology like that. That was pretty much owned and operated by the Philistines. So they're going up against some battle. Please have that in the back of your uh, or note in your Bible or the back of your mind as we're going through this because what's just absolutely astounding is common sense would have said, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to go into battle? What are you going to do, like throw your farm equipment at them? You know, like throw your, you know, what are you going to do, right? But I want you to see something here that's so beautiful, and that's a pure faith and trust in God's commitments. When God had called Israel and said, I'm going to bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey, and I'm going to give you Your adversaries. I'm going to take them and I will defeat them. Why? Because they wouldn't bow their knee, right? They were pagan. They had gone against God's judgments, commandments, and statutes. And so, really, it's Philistines versus God, not really against Israel that way. But we're going to learn some lessons here tonight and some axioms that help us to understand that this is applicable in our walk today. There's many a times that we're going to look at things before us, and it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense, or why we'd want to step into that, why we'd want to move, why we'd want to do any of these things, and and yet when God commands us, he desires obedience. He desires obedience to that calling and faithfulness, and to step with faith. And I I love this passage that we're in here. uh, On the other side of this coin, we're going to see Saul, a man that started with beautiful humility, and unfortunately, he begins to go and follow himself or let himself become leader and not God, and he doesn't even realize it. The power of the mind is amazing, isn't it, as we all gather here tonight? How many of us, in, in an honesty here, have thought we are completely right. We are completely right in what we're doing or where we're going. We've got it. We've got it all figured out, only to find out we were not even in the will of God. That's happened to me quite a few times in my life, where I began to think, and my intellect went before my spirit, the spirit of God in me. Let's bow our heads, and let's hear what the word has to say to us tonight. Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you that, God, you have preserved passages like this for us, that, Lord, this wasn't just for Israel those many thousands of years ago, but for my heart, for your people's heart tonight, God, that we would see two different men, both from the same family, same DNA, same bloodline. One starts well, but doesn't finish well. The other one, Lord, in this case, Jonathan, he grew up without much of a father figure here, and yet because, Lord, you were his father, his footsteps were directed, he yielded his way to your will. God, that's our prayer for all of us here tonight, that we would be following you in obedience to your calling on our lives, for our families, our children, our grandchildren, and for our country, Lord, and our leadership. We would ask this in your holy name, Jesus Christ, and all people resounding would pray, amen. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, his armor bearer, that is, come let us go over to the Philistines, Garrison. That's the second time. If you really think about it, the first time Jonathan had already said this once, this is the second time he's mentioning this garrison, this camp, that is on the other side, but he did not tell his father. Now, I I think that's interesting, right, that to me what's amazing in this man, this character Jonathan that we're beginning to learn about, we've been introduced to him just briefly so far in chapter 13, is Specifically, do we have anywhere in our passage or text tonight where God said, Jonathan, I want you to go out and I want you to conquer the Philistines. We don't have a single verse that will tell us that in chapter 14 where specifically God spoke to Jonathan and said, go. But this wasn't blind faith either. This wasn't ignorance or, uh, you know, pomposity of man to take a step of uh, you might say, presumption f- presumptuous faith to do something that God hadn't showed him because the promise had already been given to Israel that they were to go into the land and that they were to defeat those in the land and that they would be removed and that they were to inherit all of the land that God was going to give them. And so we see here Jonathan trusting the promises that was given to his fathers and his forefathers that way. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah. So here's Jonathan. He's overlooking already the Philistine camp. He's not relaxing. He's not back at ease. He's out looking, and he's talking to his armor bearer. He's saying, look at them. They're gathered right there. They're ours for the taking. That's what Jonathan's saying. But Saul, on the other hand, he's with the rest of the men at Gibeah, and he's sitting back and he's looking from a distance and he's just very comfortable and relaxed, withdrawn from the battle. He's under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Ahijah, the son of Itub. Ichabod's brother and the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. If you remember, we talked about this. That line is no longer in effect as a priestly tribe. Now it's the line of Eleazar in 2 Chronicles 6. You'll read about that, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 6. We'll read that. But now Eli and his sons, because of their sin and the disobedience, that line has moved. The priestly tribes moved. But we see here that these priests in Shiloh were wearing an ephod. I believe God gave us this information, not because they're saying they're acknowledging the line of Eli, because Eli is certainly no longer in in uh, you know the role of a priest for the Lord, and that line is no longer in the. But it's showing us that the ephod was present, which means we have the Urim and Thum, right? We have the Urim and Thum, and that's important because later on, as we're going to read, we're going to see that there's sin in the camp. But it's presumptuous sin again, and Saul is going to make a very ignorant vow. And because of this ignorant vow, they're going to go through and cast lots. Where is the sin? And so I believe that's why God has given us this detail of the ephod being present. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over, the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. If you go over to Israel today, they're still there. The tour guides... Uh, if you ever go over with a Calvary Chapel or we ever go over, if the Lord should tarry, there's tour guides, they'll take you through and they actually will point out this is the rock that you read about in First Samuel chapter 14, these two rocks on either side. They're still preserved and they're still there. And the name of one is Bozes, right? Which means in Hebrew, shine or glitter, if you will, glistening. And the name of the other was Senaha or Sena, right? And the front of one faced northward and the opposite Michmash and the other southward opposite Gibeah. Now, just so you understand what we're talking about, you're going to see this. There's a terrain in front of them. It's mountainous. These stones are telling you and giving you a clue that there's these big stones and they're going up and we're going to read about how Jonathan is climbing over them to get a high position that he can look upon or look down to see the garrison of the Philistines, okay? And Gibeah, if you look at Micmash on your map that I gave you last week, that's, I mean, he's not less than a mile. He's not that far away where he, you know, um, Saul and the 600 men are back and they can see it, but they're not at the high, they're not at the same high ground that Jonathan's going to be at. He's literally going to climb this, and he's going to get the beautiful perspective and point of view. But he's also going to do something, and that is he's going to put himself in a position. Yes, he's got the high ground, but it's not easy. Should they charge him? only two men, right, him and his armor bearer, to escape. So what's this telling us? He's committed. He's not looking back. He's not wondering. He's going, and he's going up the mountain, and he's trusting God that God is going to give him this victory, even before he's begun to make the climb. In his heart, this decision has already been made, and it's been settled. Then Jonathan said to the young men who bore his armor, his armor-bearer, come, let us go over the garrison of these uncircumcised, and maybe that the Lord will work for us. Do you see that? Clearly (laughs) not a comfortable position, out of his comfort zone, right? But he's seeing things from God's perspective. He's not seeing them from man's. Because if you're looking at this and you see, do you remember, it says that they were like the sands of the seashore. We read in chapter 13, that's how many Philistines there are, like the sands of the seashore. And here, two men. Now, to anybody else or anybody here, this would seem insane, wouldn't it? It would be insane. Two men against thousands or tens of thousands or possibly millions. But to Jonathan, did you hear what he said? Let's go over to these uncircumcised, that it may be that the Lord will work for us. When God is for you, who can be against you? He understood this. I love this here, this simplicity of heart here, right? He's not a showman, right? He, he, he serves without expectation. He's, he's acting on the promise of God of faith. But please, I want to point out, this isn't foolishness. He's not presumptuous. God's not calling you in your life to go out and do something insane to prove your love or faith for God. That's not what this is saying. This promise was given to Israel. Jonathan believes it, and therefore he's doing. He's not calling all of us to go climb a mountain and take on a million people. That's not our calling necessarily. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. Again, I think it's beautiful. It's you can look at Deuteronomy chapter thirty two. I'll just turn there quickly. Look at verse thirty. How could one chase a thousand? Let me give you context to where we are in Deuteronomy 3. This was the song of Moses. This is what he was um, singing or sharing with the people. It's twofold. One, it's a call out on the people for their disobedience or their distress, their idea that they have provoked God to jealousy. And then the other aspect of God declaring his sovereignty and how he can give them all victory and is all powerful. In verse 30, he said, How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? Unless their rock, right? Who's the rock? Jesus, right? We, we read about that in 1 Corinthians. Their rock, right? 1 Corinthians 10 and what have you. He says, Unless the rock has sold them and the Lord has surrendered them. Do you see that? I'll read it again. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? He's saying that how could the pagan people of that land come against one Israelite, that's what this is saying in context, and put them to flight? Or how could 10,000 sands of the seashore come against one Israelite and send them fleeing unless God would allow it? For the rock is not like our rock. Right? It says unless their rock has sold them. That's speaking to the power of God. That's where Jonathan, I'm sure he read these scriptures. I'm sure Saul had read these scriptures. Remember one of the commandments by God to the kings in Deuteronomy? We read that they were to turn around and do what? They were to read the entire Torah or Pentateuch that way. So they would have known that, and Jonathan probably grew up with his father, had reading that to him as a king one day would be a king. If the line was to carry on, he would be too read and well-read within Scripture because it was a biblical commandment under the law for the king to have read or to have even written down the word of God. So he would have known this passage. And I often wondered, is this the passage that Jonathan had in his head? As he's looking at these tens of thousands and he's seeing all these men, as he's going, you know what? This is just like Deuteronomy chapter 32:30 30, when God says, unless God, right, sold them or gives them or surrenders them, no one can come against them. What a confidence to have. This isn't presumptive. Do you see that? This isn't presumptive. This is based on promises and truth. You know, we as New Covenant believers have promises and truth for us too, don't we? We don't need to be afraid. We don't. Right? So he goes through and he begins to, his armor bearer says, I'm with you, let's go. They're not crazy. No, they're trusting the promises of God. Then Jonathan said, said, very well, let us cross over to these men and we will show ourselves to them. Jonathan completely understood what was going on. If they say thus to us, now what he's going to do is, this is not a fleece, this is confirmation. He believes, as he said already, the Lord will work for us. Let's see if the Lord will work for us. Now he wants to confirm it. What would we say today with the full counsel of God, all 66 books? Lord, confirm it in your word. That's what we would say. Lord, confirm it in your word. Give us us a scripture. Give us a passage. Give us confirmation that we know where to step. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, if they say to us, right, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and not go up to them. But if they say thus, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has delivered them into the hand, our hand, and there this will be a sign to us. Do you understand what's happening here? He's basically saying it's going to go one of two directions. Either they're going to call us to him, or they're going to say, you come up to us, right? Either way, we're going to know the will of God in this. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. This takes amazing faith. And the Philistines said, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden There's Part of the sign. Here it comes. Then the men of the garrison called to Jonathan in his armor and said, come up to us. There's the sign. There it is. The very thing that Jonathan had asked the Lord as he was praying, he says, now, this is this is what we'll do. And there it was. Now, what would Jonathan have done if he said, but wait a minute, Lord, are you sure? How easy it is for us to make light of that and laugh, but that's because we've done that. We've asked God, Lord, are you really sure? Can you give me another scripture? And then he gives you a scripture, and then you pull the, you know, if, it, if it's wet outside in the morning, you know. But the reality is, do we trust God like that? That's a personal decision in a personal conversation with Jesus. Do you have that kind of trust with him tonight? That if the Lord said go, you'll go. If the Lord says stay, you'll stay. Because that's disobedience. Once you ask for that confirmation and the Lord gives it to you, and then you don't follow through because of fear, because of intrepidation, because of uncertainty, then that becomes disobedience. That's disobedience by not honoring God and his will for your life. But that's not what's going to happen to Jonathan. It's confirmed, and Jonathan's going to go full-on in, and it's going to be interesting because what happens is Jonathan's going to run up towards that garrison, and he's going to go, he's going to pull his sword out, and he's going to knock him down. And as he knocks him down, his armor bearer is going to come up and finish the job on each one of them, some 20-plus men in such a short area. It's remarkable. I wonder if God had picked out that exact plot of ground where this battle would happen. Then the men of the garrison called Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come to us, and we will show you something. Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees, that's how we know he's going up a mountainous area, with his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan and as he came after him, his armor bearer killed them. He finished them off. So Jonathan's literally running up this thing. They're He's hitting them with the sword. They're falling. He, Jonathan's going right on to the next one, hitting them, knock, knocking them down, next one. And then his armor bearer's coming in and thrusting with the sword and finishing the job on each one of these guys. Now look at how it's recorded in verse 14. The first slaughter. Do you see that? This wasn't even a close battle. Thousands upon thousands as these first men come out. And just alone, God called it a slaughter. Which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half an acre of land, right? That's around 2,420 square yards or around 21,780 square feet. That's what he's talking about It's not a large piece of land. This is not a large area. This was massive infighting. Knocking one down, thrusting through with the other. Close proximity, infighting as they would close fighting that way, close quarter fighting. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people because of two men that trusted God. The garrison... And the raiders also trembled, and the earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. We even see something happened here with some kind of natural disaster, that God allowed some kind of earthquake or something to happen as this is all happening. As though these men are thrusting with the very power of God, that each man that they striking is hitting the ground. It's though the earth is actually shaking. It must have been some sight to behold. Now, the watchman of Saul and Gibeah, now we go back to Gibeah. Hold that scene there in your mind, this amazing slaughter that's going on with these two men. And now the scripture and passage is going to take us back to Saul and the 600 men at Gibeah and the watchman that's coming out as he's fulfilling his job, is watch to see who's coming against or where they are at or what's going on. And he's going to happen to wander out, and he's going to look, and he's going to say, what is going on over there that they're all fighting? I mean, he doesn't know who it is. So he's going to end up saying, let's take a roll call. Who's gone out from among us? Who's fighting this battle this way? So the watchmen of Saul of Gibeah and Benjamin looked, and there was a multitude melting away, like the sands of the sea. And they went here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Now call the roll and see who has gone from us. And when they had called the roll, surprising Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. I think this is where it's going to get interesting. I think we're going to see, and you be a Berean, but I think we're going to see a little bit of Saul's jealousy. A little bit of that change in Saul from that man that was humble and meek, strength under control at one time, to now his own son, to become jealous of his own son that way. Because Jonathan has been, been given by the Lord this faith to trust and to go into the battle, and yet his father is going to sit back and we already know he's going to be a jealous man if you've read first Samuel and second Samuel you know that he ends up his jealousy drives him to insanity over David wanting to try to kill David but his own son i believe this is where it starts you see there are men like that that can't have anybody else that's more talented or better or stronger around them And Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time, the ark of God was with the children of Israel. What did he do? He said, Go get our lucky rabbit's foot. Go get the rabbit's foot. You remember chapter 4 of 1 Samuel 4? Eli, his two sons, same thing. They didn't learn. Don't worship the box. Worship God. Now it happened? While Saul talked to the priest, that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went to the battle. Indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor. Do Do you hear what that's saying? That's saying that even the Philistines were hit. They were so much skirmish going on that they were attacking themselves. And there was great confusion. Fighting against each other. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines before that time, who went up with them into the camp from the surrounding country, they also joined the Israelites who with Saul and Jonathan. What this is saying is that the Can- or the Philistines had slaves that were Hebrews that were taking care of the land, doing different things, odd jobs for them. They turned around once this uprising. Two men, specifically one man, Jonathan, the faith of one man to cause an uprising, to trust God. It just takes one soul. It's all it takes is one soul to stand in the gap. That's Billy Graham. One soul, Billy Graham. Millions upon millions came to Christ because he stood up and he preached the word of God to presidents, to the world. He wasn't worried about what they thought of him. He wasn't worried about what the people are going to think. That's going to be Saul's problem. We're going to read about that. That's going to be Saul's problem. He's going to be more concerned what the people think than what God thinks. But these Hebrews that that were enslaved that way, they, they come back and they start joining the battle and they start attacking the Philistines that were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains of Ephraim, when they had heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after the battle. We see them all joining in, right? So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle shifted in Beth-haven. Now, this shows us a couple things here. The power of persuasion, the power of belief and faith. They all join in. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Please. Look at verse 16. Look what happens when all join together and are knit together in unity. What can be done in the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. Verse, six, for, uh, verse 16 of chapter 4. Of Ephesians, for whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying itself in love. It's powerful, isn't it? Look at Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 19. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of what? Faith. Let us, let us move in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more that the more as you see the day approaching. What day? The last day, the days we're living in. He's actually giving us exhortation for this day. We read it in the beginning of First Samuel that Jonathan himself carried this very act out, but we see that we are called to that very thing, that we are not to forsake the gathering of the saints. We are to come together as a body of believers, Building each other up, encouraging each other for the work ahead, for the day of the Lord is coming. And we're to be ready and watching. That's what he's telling us here. And it shouldn't be a surprise for any of us. And we, we're doing all these things because our hope and our assurance of faith, right? Holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. Who's the he? Jesus, we don't need to waver. We don't need to wonder, Jesus, are you coming back? No, he said he's coming back, and he's coming very soon. Some of you watched the presidential debate last night. Oh, my. I don't think he's coming back soon enough. Should have come back last night. That would have been awesome. Whew, raptured right up, man. Thank you, Jesus. I didn't have to sit through another 20 minutes of that. We've never seen anything like that in our lives, have we? Never. We are in the last days, man. When two people can't even have enough respect on a stage, even though they disagree at, you know, vehemently, but to conduct themselves with order. It's just a picture of the threat of society around them, of the world around them. It's a picture of what's happening, the disintegration of morality in the very fabric of humanity. We're just seeing it in prime time. And we look at it and we say, we don't like it. Oh, there's some... Proponents out there, yeah, he really gave it to him. Or the other guy will say, he really gave it to him. And I remember the old cartoons. Some of you remember goofy cartoons back in the day, you know? And they used to have the box at one. You know, the guy slugs him, the other guy slugs him, and he's like, yeah, they're both winning. And then they both fall down and pass out. And neither one of them won. It's like, what just happened? We're in the last days, friends. There's no other way to explain this. It's insanity. It's insanity. And here, you know, we see this man, Jonathan, trusting in the faith and promise of God. And whether it was, I believe, whether it was with his armor bearer or not, he was going. Because he trusted the promises God had for him. And he wasn't holding back. And he wasn't afraid to die. And he wasn't afraid, you know, to lose his kingdom or the inheritance of the kingdom that he could have. None of that mattered to him. The most important thing for Jonathan in that moment was obedience to the living God. His priorities were right. God was going to give him the victory because the motive of his heart was right. And after all, God did say you are to go into the land and to clear out the land that way. And he trusts the promises of God. Are we doing that? Are we doing that tonight? And every day of our lives, are we trusting those promises? There's so much more that I think God wants to do in our hearts, each and every one of us. But often I think we, we put God in a box or we limit God instead of expecting the unimaginable seeing what God can do with one man or one woman that's willing to stand in the gap and trust the promises of God and not lean on their own understanding, but be directed by God, acknowledging him, letting him direct his path. And as he did that and he marched in, he was given a great victory, a slaughter as it was called. But did you see what else happened there? Did you notice that? There was an uprising, rising up. And what were these men rising up, even the ones that were enslaved, the Hebrews that were, they rise up from their captivity. The others that were so afraid that they were hiding in the crevices of the mountains and the stone, they said, no, we're going to pick up our plows and we're going to go and swing them at them because they didn't have swords. They didn't care. After all, David will use a stone to defeat a, a Goliath what can't you do when you're in the will of god it gives me great hope great assurance you know it's it's days like these it's days like these that we're living where much of the world is growing faint anxiety and depression at all time highs people falling all around us these are our days The days when our God, Messiah Jesus Christ, stands and we stand with him with the hope and the truth of the gospel that saves and sets the captives free, just like it set these captives free. He wants to do that today, but he's looking for a man and he's looking for a woman to stand up. Even if it's against all odds even if it's outnumbered, even if it looks like you're insane and hopeless, if God is directing you in obedience, you step. Again, we're not talking about presumptuous here. He's telling us when called, obey. And because of that, we see this amazing, contagious, uprising, Standing on the promises of God, these men rush in and experience a victory unlike anything they'd ever experienced. But the opposite's true, too, and we can't ignore that tonight. Did you know anxiety is contagious? Did you know that fear is contagious? Depression is contagious? Growing up, I grew up very simple in Rochester, New York, uh, my mother and dad had separated, okay. So I grew up predominantly with my mom. I'd go visit my father on the weekends, right? It wasn't the best marriage. I didn't have a good example. I didn't grow up in a Christian or biblical home. And uh, I ran with the wrong crowd Many, much of my life growing up. When I was young, I was more of the brawler kind of kid, you know, always in trouble. And um, I never honestly knew what anxiety was. Never knew what it was. Never knew what it was to be panicked or feared or, or any of that. I just went. I don't know that I even thought, to be honest with you. I just did. And I'm not saying this in a way that it's right. I'm, I'm, I'm explaining something of how it's contagious. I moved down to New York City area. I went to college. It's actually where I met my bride. And we were in college together, and I got to know her, and I got to know a lot of people in a different community in the city, and boy, it was big, you know, I I remember the first time I was on Park Avenue, I called my father, dad, I'm on like Monopoly, you know the game Monopoly? I'm on the Park (laughs) Avenue, like the game. My dad said, that's good, son, that's good, okay. That's, That's just how naive I was. I was simple, very simple man, simple, simple naive boy, but I never knew that. I started hearing about these folks that were you know, I worked for a, a bank, J.P. Morgan. Initially, I was uh, I was economics, econometrics, mathematics, statistics, regression. When they were trying to figure out what's the best place, you know what T1s are today. You might have heard of them. T1 lines, fractional T1. Where to put what we all call internet today and ISPs in midtown Manhattan. Where to put those? And they they hired me to come in and do a, a mathematical model to tell them where they thought the best ways was to put these. Fractional are these T1s. So I'm working in this bank. I'm seeing these guys go down, and their stocks, millions, and, you know, money like I had never even heard of growing up, you know. I just didn't have that kind of money or even see anything like that, or no people that even kind of made that money. $100,000? You're rich. I had no idea what that even looked like. Well, they they were making, you know, money hand over but they're stressed. They're drinking Maylocks by like the bottle. Their stomachs are all wrecked. At, you know, all this kind of stuff going on. And I watched it just pound the stuff like you'd, you know, drink apple juice or something. And you know, boom, they put it down. And I would watch these guys go in the bed, and they would, you know, they'd sweat profusely or heavily and they'd come out and I'm like, "What is it?" And they're like, "It's the anxiety, man." I'm like, you're sick. you got to go to a doctor. You must have a cold or flu or something. And they're like, no, it's the anxiety. And I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) We get pregnant. I remember, remember I told you I grew up, uh, my mom and dad were divorced. I didn't know what it looked like to have a a good family, a good home. My mother was a good mother. She's a good woman. She was a hardworking good woman but I didn't know what it was like. And all I knew is I didn't want to repeat the mistakes. I didn't want to be that alcoholic. I didn't want to be a womanizer. I didn't want to be, transparently, I didn't want to be like my father because it's all I saw growing up. I've never shared this story with many of you, but that's what I knew. And I didn't want to be like that. I was going to be different. I was going to be a good man. I didn't know God at the time. I, didn't, I wasn't saved yet. But I knew I wanted to be different. I wanted to have morals. And I remember we got pregnant and Lisa was a little nervous at first because, you know, we were just starting out. Didn't have a lot of money, you know. and Weren't sure where we were going to get food and how we were going to eat. But we had love, man. We knew that love would go a long way. So... We got pregnant and uh, she was a little nervous at first. I said, calm down, it's gonna be fine. We can work. I can always work. It's always raised, right? Many of you were raised that way. You know what I'm talking. You work. You know what? You work, that's what you do. It doesn't matter what you do, you work. You will work. It's a privilege to work. How different the generations are today. And I can remember just, you know, it's gonna be all right. But I started to actually kind of doubt. I saw these guys that were stressed out at the job, and what if they got laid off and all that? What do you mean lay off? And all these things. About six months, she comes. We're at her sister's house, my sister-in-law's, in in the Bronx. She comes down the steps. I don't know if I didn't notice I was so busy. And all of a sudden, I see this little belly with the baby. I knew that day what anxiety was. You think she had morning sickness? I hightailed it to the bathroom. I said, I think I'm getting sick. What's going on? Why am I, I don't feel so good. I feel queasy in my stomach. What's going on? And she's like, oh, no, honey, it's okay. I said, what are you talking about? She says, it's normal. You're just nervous. You want to be a good dad. You're going to be a good father. She knew more about it than I didn't understand any of that. But I saw it. I saw it around the city. I saw it around the people. It became contagious. And then the next thing I know, I'm running in all these people and they're telling me how they've got the anxiety or they got the depression. They, different, and next thing we're all talking about the, th- you know, well, yeah, this last week, yeah, oh man, my heart beats faster than your heartbeat. You know, still even a competition, even with the anxiety guys. We're knuckleheads, right? We, my my, my anxiety is worse than your anxiety. You know? But this, this, this is contagious. That kind of thinking is contagious. And you know what it does? It promotes doubt. It promotes uncertainty. It promotes fear. And then we all start believing it. It's called groupthink. And next thing you know, every one of us is falling and collapsing. That's why we read Hebrews. That's why we go back to the promises of Ephesians 4, right? Or 5 and Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19. That's why. We need to go back to the truth, the only truth that tells us who we are in Christ Jesus. And when we read these passages, we see that it is good for us not to be alone. It is good for us not to forsake the gathering of the saints. It's good for us to come together and do what? Build each other up for the days ahead because the day of the Lord is coming. That's also what we do here. Yes, we come and read the Bible and the Lord transforms and conforms our heart. But the other thing that's happening right now is we're getting inoculated. The only kind of good inoculation there is. We're getting inoculated from fear, from anxiety, from doubt. Because we're being given hope. Because our God is a promise keeper doesn't mean we won't have days where we struggle. We all do. doesn't mean you won't have days of uncertain. Lord, help me in my unbelief. We all do. But we have to pay attention to this, that if we're not car- careful, in Ephesians 6, as we read, it's a battle for the mind. And if we are not careful to acknowledge the battle before us, we're pawns, and we're going to be taken out. We have to realize the battle we're in and prepared for. Well, now Saul, back to our reading in verse 24 here. And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Why? Because they just went through an amazing battle, probably full of a lot of testosterone, a lot of, you know, a serious battle here. But we're going to see something very interesting here. The, The pride... Is taken root in Saul. He's allowed rules and traditions to ruin what should have been a celebration and a great day of a victory. Now Saul is thinking, what a great victory, and there's more to do. Let's go fast, right before we're about to take arms. Have you ever had a project you were going to work on, heavy lifting or maybe building something. It's usually good to have a good meal, nice meal before you go and regain your strength, refresh your strength. They had just been fighting against thousands and thousands of Philistines. And now Saul's going to say, don't touch it. Did God tell them or tell Saul to tell them not to touch it? No, this is Saul being religious. This is Saul being religious and adding a tradition, a ritual that was never commanded by God. To do what? To earn favor? God says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. Chapter 15, verse 22. So the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance. What vengeance, Saul? Vengeance is the Lord's. It doesn't belong to you. This isn't even your battle. What are you angry about? This is stupid. I don't have a better word for it. That's what he is doing. He is taking an oath. Jephthah, we read about in the book of Judges, did something very similar. You know that Saul, again, living during that time and understanding those things that would have either been written or passed down orally, would have heard of Jephthah and his daughter. And for him to make the very same mistake of a rash oath, how easy it is for us to, to do that to put a tradition or a ritual in the place of relationship and fellowship and obedience. He says, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies so that none of the people tasted food. Now, again, there's no technology. They don't have metallurgy. They don't have any of these things. They're going against a vast army. And it's during this moment of temptation because now they're going to be presented not only with a foe or an adversary that's far better technologically equipped, but now they also are weaker because they just fought a skirmish and have not refreshed themselves in any way. And this is what their king is sending them into. He should have been leading, feeding, and protecting. But you know what Saul was more interested in? Saul. He was more interested in himself and the vow he was going to take before God because he knew best. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. Isn't that always the way? Here you are. You're fa- you know, is that, do you not find the best meals when we're fasting? Like we do our, our corporate fast every year if we fast for like a week. Man, I, I find the best restaurants in this area and they seem to always be cooking outdoors. And the fumes just come right into the car. And you're like, oh, the temptation comes. The enemy's not going to take a break. That honey's going to be laying everywhere. And isn't that what God said, that this would be a land full of milk and honey? And so there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping. But no one put his hand in his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod with his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand in his mouth and his countenance brightened. He was refreshed, right? Jonathan was too busy listening to God than to listen to Saul. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day and the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. That's exactly what happened. Look now, because he didn't just trouble the people, he also troubled the land. He also went against God's promise of the land, a land that would flow with milk and honey. That was to provide. God provided sustenance for the people, and Saul was getting in the middle of that. Look now how my countenance is brightened because I've tasted a little of this honey, right? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found, for now we would there have not been as much a great slaughter among the Philistines. In other words, he was saying it would be even greater of a slaughter. Now they have driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Agilon. So the people were very faint, right? All because because of Saul's stupid vow. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with blood. So what's happening here? Because of Saul's sin, The people now were drawn because they were so famished and so hungry, they couldn't wait. It didn't mean that they were cutting open and eating the blood. That's, if you're reading it, that's not what it's saying. The the Jewish law, tradition was, is that they were to hang the meat for a period of time so that the blood would drip off of the meat. It would no longer be entangled that way or washed off the meat. And there's several reasons for that. One, we read in Leviticus and other places, right? Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, um, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 23, about... Specifically, you know, the life is in the blood and how life belongs in the blood, and, and it's it's pointing to a sacrifice and the, the reverence of sacrifice, right? One day pointing to the blood of Jesus Christ, the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. Life is in the blood. The second is, sure, there's pathogens and things like that, that, you know, that's why even our our uh, FDA and our, you know, health community says, you know, when you take raw egg or you take meats that are, you know, completely raw and eat them, you risk the what? Foodborne illnesses, right? We, we understand this. But they were so hungry, they didn't drain the blood. Where's the first place we see that? Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. One of the first places we see that right in the beginning they were called to do this. This wasn't just something had given even after the law. This was given before the law, right? Genesis chapter 9 verse 4. Then they told Saul saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously, roll a large stone to me this day as though he's going to fix it. That's his name, fix it, Saul. Then Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of them, the people, brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Okay. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to verse 35. We're going to get another character trait from Saul. We're going to get a little bit more of a reflection of how he was doing on his job. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first. Do you see that? Altar that he built to the Lord. First of all, was it his job to build altars to God? No. Whose job was it? Samuel. Once again, he's taking upon himself something that doesn't belong to him, an office that doesn't belong to him. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. What's the second thing that you notice? How many years had Saul already been? I mean, when we first met Saul, he was a young lad, young man. He didn't have a son. His son, Jonathan, is now able to go to battle with him. How many years have passed? Enough for his son to be old enough to wield a sword and to go into battle that way. 15, 17, 20? However many years had passed at this point, he's got a family. He's got other kids. We're going to read that. And this Even if it was 10 years, this is the first altar that was built to the Lord in 10 years after Saul has taken the throne? He should have commanded Samuel or asked Samuel within the first month, first week, build an altar unto the Lord. But that wasn't the priority for Saul, was it? It wasn't God. It wasn't the relationship with God. No, it was Saul. Power changes a man if they're not grounded in Christ. Do you see that? Now Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? One of the first times we see that Saul even goes to God and asks him, what should we do? But please look at this and underline this in your Bible. But he didn't answer him. He didn't answer him that day, right? Saul was no longer following God. Saul was following Saul. And he didn't even recognize that God wasn't even leading him. That to me is frightening. He should have waited on God. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin is today. Why is that he's saying sin? Because he knew that if God was refusing to speak to him, there must be a sin issue, right? That's where Saul's presuming. It's got to be a sin issue. It can't be Saul. It can't be him, right? He's a, bl- he's a blame shifter. It's got- somebody else in the camp has to have sinned. Couldn't have been his ridiculous oath or the fact that he was not following God. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be Jonathan, my son, he shall surely die. What? Why did he just, where did that come from? That wasn't from the Lord either. Now he he just takes his boy and throws him under, you know, even if it's my son Jonathan, he's going to surely die. There's another oath. He's just not learning. He's not getting it. But not a man among all the people answered him. You know why? Because they knew. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. He was already presuming him and Jonathan were good. It's got to be one of the people. Can't be him or Jonathan, right? And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you, man. Right? Sorry, I added the man. But do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, Give a perfect lot. Now, again, this is where the ermum Irm, and thumum, right? This is where it comes in. This is what they would have used in that day to to try to seek and ask God, what is the answer? Yes, no, maybe so, right? What have you. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. In other words, they were casting lots. They went to the ermum and it says, Is it these people? Is it this people? Is it this tribe? This ca-? They basically weeded out the rest of the people, and the people escaped. So now it just comes down to Saul and Jonathan. The two of them are looking at each other, right? And Saul said, cast lots between my son, Jonathan, and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. Looked at him, boy, what did you do, right? What did you do? And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. And he says this almost sarcastically. And because of that, now I must die? Like, that's it. Great oath, Dad. Well done, right? God's allowing Saul to see his pride and his presumptive flesh here. That's what's happening. So Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. And so his dad, maniacal, turns around and goes, Well, okay. I can imagine Jonathan's faith. What? For taking a little honey? I hadn't heard you. You're, you think I should die for that? The honey that my Lord provided? And told me that I would come into this land, and it was my sustenance and provision by my father. And now you think I should die for this? I can only imagine the look on Saul and Jonathan's face, faith, face. And this is why, at this point, I believe already—like I said, it's already it's the, the root of sin and pride had already taken root in Saul at this point. I, I'm, I'm certain of it. It's just foolish. But the people said to Saul, notice the people have to actually intercede for Saul's own son. Saul, right? Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Oh, Saul didn't like that, right? I think fast forward. David is, right? Saul's killed his thousand. David is 10,000. You know how Saul gets. Certainly not as the Lord lives. Not one hair in his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. You know, God moved the people to come to the aid, right? Because what? Because at that moment, rather than Saul looking at the people and going, that was a stupid oath, what did I do? He was more worried about saving public face with the people than he was than just admitting he was wrong and he had sinned and that he took an oath he was never asked to take. That's a dangerous, slippery slope. When you start worrying more about what other people, th- other people think than what God thinks. Then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went on their own place. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from hands of those who plundered him. Do you see how gracious God is here, by the way? He's already told him the kingdom is going to be removed from him. And yet, or he will be telling him. and yet at this point, God is giving him victory after victory, and he's doing it for the people in spite of the sin of this man. The sons of Saul were Jonathan, right? Abinadab, or you might have Jushi, right, in your Bible. Malachashah. I never know how to say that name right. Uh, Mal, right? And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab and the name of his younger, Michael. You remember Michael was smitten for David. Very in love with David. Should have been giving his firstborn, but he actually gives a secondborn. And you know why he did that? We'll read that in the future because he turns around and he's like, she is a nuisance to me. David, she's yours. That's what he was doing. That as we'll read it, we get to it. That's what he, Michael was that however her personality was. I mean, do you hear about a father talking about his own daughter that way? Saul apparently did not have a relationship with his kids. We don't read much of a relationship at all with his children here. The names of Saul's wife was Ahinonim, the daughter of Ahimaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Nur, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and near the father of Abner, was the son of Abel. Now, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. You know what he's saying here? He drafted him. If he saw him and he looked strong, he could potentially do what? Form a possible threat against Saul. So what did Saul do? Drafted him and got him on his team. Because he figures if he's with him, he can't be against them, right? Do you see the insanity starting to get in you? Yeah, everybody's against Saul. Everything, you know, nothing's Saul's fault, right? It's not the oath he took. We're going to stop there for tonight. This, this is going to tear this family apart. Saul will ultimately be separated from the monarchy, We're going to read in the next chapter and I encourage you to please read ahead. Saul's going to go through and he's going to be very specifically commanded to go into a battle and he's going to be told to kill everyone. Women, child, family, everyone all had sinned. And this was part of the judgment for that. And he's going to go through and he's going to keep the choice animals alive. He's going to turn around and he's going to keep the king alive, Agag. And he's going to turn around and keep him And he's going to go back, and when Samuel comes and confronts him on this very issue, he's going to turn around and say, oh, no, I I did it, you know, because the Lord. And Samuel's going to look at him and go, Saul, what don't you understand about obedience? You know, and I think this is a good word for us. This has been, I just want to tell you, this has been devotionally for me for the past month. In every devotion I've been turning, in the scriptures I've been reading, even in Philippians, where God has had us on Sundays, I believe God has been pressing in my heart obedience. And I believe he's been pressing in the hearts of the people today. Obedience. Obedience to God. Obedience to his commandments and statutes and judgments. Right? Because I believe God is allowing, we're seeing the, the wheat and chaff. And it's becoming very clear. Those that will follow God and walk according to his ways, the commandments and statutes, and those that are going to compromise and walk according to what's right in their own eyes, which is exactly what we see Saul. We see in Saul and Jonathan a beautiful picture of wheat and chaff. Wheat and chaff. And the choice and the decision is always up to the individual because they're from the same family, they have the same DNA, and they're of the same bloodline. None of that predetermined the outcome. It was an individual free will choice by the believer. And that's the same thing we see today. Amen? Let's stand and pray. God, I, as you just overheard, I I believe, Lord, you are calling every one of us here tonight to obedience. Not just here physically, but even online and in, in the church, Lord. Lord, we're seeing in our country such gross sin. 83 million children have been murdered through abortion, Lord. We've seen uh, change in definition of marriage and men and women have decided what marriage should look like, even though, Lord, you instituted it. God, we've seen a a change of civil law and morality where men and women are killing each other in streets, across cities, in this great United States of America that you, Lord, founded. Lord, you've, you've given humanity exactly what they wanted. You've given them up to their own wills. And God, I I know exactly how frightening that is, Lord, as we all do here tonight. So God, we want to come before you here, Jesus, and we want to continue to ask you for forgiveness. We want to repent, Lord, for the wicked ways in our hearts, beginning with my heart first, Lord, our hearts here. We need repentance, Jesus. You're calling your people to repentance, You're calling your people to right relationship and obedience. God, we need forgiveness. We need reconciliation. Lord, we pray that you will forgive our leaders. You will forgive, Lord, those that you've placed in authority for just as Saul walking against your commandments and statutes and doing what's right in their own eyes. Lord, please, Have mercy on your people. We pray you would come, Lord, and you'd bring us home to be with you that we may worship you for all of eternity. But God, we know that your ways are perfect and we know that, Lord, there's someone out there that is yet to receive your gospel. And Lord, until that time has come, Lord, I pray for the heart of Jonathan for the commitment of Jonathan, for the faith of Jonathan, for the obedience of a Jonathan, that all of us would be Jonathans to stand in the gap, even if we were the only ones, Lord, in our neighborhood, on our block, in our street, in our house, Lord, in our jobs. God, I pray, please use us because, God, we see how contagious a rising of your spirit is. It brings about revival, Lord. It brings about awakening. And God, we need a great awakening today, Jesus. So God, I pray you will move upon your church and your church will collectively rise up and we'll be expectant for the best is yet to come, Jesus. Fill us anew here tonight, Lord. Help our unbelief. Take away our fears, our anxieties, our intrepidations, God, and replace it with a strength in you alone, Jesus, that we will rely upon you alone. For you are our God and we are your people. We thank you, Jesus Christ, and we pray all this in your holy name and all God's people prayed. Amen. I love you all. God bless you. And have a good evening. Travel mercies.